Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we are going to explore Genesis chapter 31. Uh, we just had a narrative in the Jacob cycle that is going to end up acting as Jacob's last action in Mesopotamia. So he had fled for his life, went to his uh, father's ancestral family, and there's the whole scene with Laban and the wives that result. And it ended with this uh, interesting breeding experiment that is now going to send Jacob away. So there's one kind of final story that's going to transition us from uh, Jacob's uh, narrative in Mesopotamia. Eventually, he's going to end up back uh, in in the land of Canaan. Um, And so this is kind of a fulcrum chapter between two different parts of Jacob's story. And and we've seen this before back around uh, Genesis 27, Genesis 28. That was one preparing to go, and now... This is going to lead him to to go as well. Um, And so that brings us to Genesis 31. And uh, this whole whole story starts off with some conversation between Jacob and Laban and Laban's family. Um, And we find out that Laban's sons, the people who are supposed to inherit Laban's wealth, they're understandably angry about everything that just happened in the last chapter. Laban, too, is angry. Um, The text puts this a little lighter. It says, Laban did not regard Jacob as favorably as he did before. No kidding. So, verse 3 comes along. And we get this interaction um, where Adonai tells Jacob to return from Mesopotamia or or Babylon. Um, Kind of that whole region is generalized at this point. Um, Go go from there and return to the land of his ancestors, and God will be with him. And it wouldn't be a stretch here to associate this with Isaiah. Um, think of that popular line, prepare a highway for Adonai. Later in Israel's narrative, you're going to see this around like Isaiah chapter 40. Adonai would be with Israel in exile in Mesopotamia, just like Adonai is with Jacob, and remember, Jacob's name is Israel at this point, or is going to become Israel. Um, so Adonai is with Jacob slash Israel here and is going to bring them back to the land of promise, you know, the land of their ancestors. So the similarity of finishing a process, a part of a narrative cycle, and returning with God seems intentional. And you have to think back to that. Some of this composition and editing is happening around the same time as Isaiah. So that's a that's a really interesting um, comparison to, to make there. Then verse 4. Um, so Adonai has spoken to Jacob. And now Jacob gets Rachel and Leah together. And uh, he basically tells his wives, it's time to go. And this whole, this whole explanation of this... Uh, it's unique because in other instances with Isaac and with Abraham, we get like the primary source, firsthand account of God's instructions to those patriarchs. Here we get Jacob kind of secondhand telling his wives the instruction, and you can't help but wonder if a little bit of a game of telephone happened here. So he goes on to, he says, time to go. Then he goes on to justify kind of what's happened. And he, he gives his story. You know, I worked, I put in the time, 
your dad kept changing the rules. I did him a favor. And then God happened to have all of the flocks come out speckled. And I, I told your dad to take the speckled off his hands. Just so happens, look, they're all speckled. Dad is mad. Let's go. That's kind of my translation of, <laughs> of those verses. He says nothing of his breeding arrangement. Uh, he just gives this dream that he supposedly had, starting in verse 10, with a full out, here I am, callback, right? And we've seen this again and again so far in Genesis. And you see this again and again throughout the Torah, throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Um, but again, it's Jacob recounting the situation. We're not seeing it happen live. And, and he kind of says, like, see, just like our forefather, God said my name and I said, here I am. And this is apparently where God tells Jacob that he has seen Laban's wrongdoing. Again, Jacob's putting this in God's mouth, which you you have to decide if you trust it. And, you know, God's going to make this right. And just like the promise of Bethel, if you remember Genesis 28, which was also another dream, Jacob is saying that the dream that led him to them has now given him new directives to return coincidentally, with all the loot. Mission accomplished. And, and if you've ever heard someone say, you know, hey, God told me to, and then go to great lengths to justify it, I think that's, I my opinion, interpreting kind of what's happening here. It's doing something and justifying it, guys in religious language, and, you know, that's not necessarily promoted here. I think the author wants you to see because the author has decided not to put this directly in the words of God. This is Jacob recounting the story. I think the author wants you to see that Jacob's still the deceiver, that that's still being a part of the game because we have all of the information. We as the readers have the story and Jacob's version sounds a little bit different, right? Um, and, and I think there's... Genesis and even the, the the Bible as a whole is constantly balancing this this strange thing between human agency and divine providence. For most of the characters, it always conveniently tends to affirm you know what is they want to happen. And for most of us, when we are working through this balancing act, we conveniently tend to affirm what we've already done or what we want to do. You're kind of seeing that in, in the very human life of Jacob here. And then you get to verse 14. I know we're moving quite quickly through this first section of the chapter, but the good stuff comes at the end. So um, verse 14, Leah and Rachel kind of realize what this means. And it also means that there's not going to be an inheritance for them directly from Laban. They're now foreigners to their tribe and because they've been sold for a bride price, technically, you know, and they support Jacob's commission. And it's interesting to look at um, how this sort of bride price, and we've and we've seen this a little bit so far throughout Jacob's narrative. The, the right. bride price, that social construct that works in the ancient world, I think the author kind of assumes, you know, you know the context of that. You know what's going on here. Absolutely. Yeah, you'll notice this is the first time that Rachel and Leah actually agree with one another instead of fighting. And they both say, you know, our father has treated us like we were foreigners. And really what's happening here, normally with a bride price in the ancient Near East, a man would give the father money, but it's more as a surety. It's like the father holds that money in trust then for perhaps future children. But in this case, Jacob has not given money. He's been paying this bride price 
through labor. So the only money he has is whatever he's been able to earn from Laban. And so it's almost like the wives feel like they have been treated like foreign women. Think back to Hagar. She had to remain a slave in order for her son Ishmael to inherit. And it's almost the same thing here where they feel like maybe we're going to have to stay here with our father where all these flocks and things are if our children are going to inherit. And so it's almost it's kind of an odd thing that's going on here. Many times we will see in the Bible where it talks about a man buying his wife. But this is actually, according to Susan Nittich, the only place in the Bible where you will see that a father is said to sell his daughters as wives. You may see that he sells daughters as slaves, and that's a whole other conversation. But it's never a situation where a man sells his daughter as a wife. And so this is really a kind of a unique position. And they really feel that they have been treated poorly here and that they have not been treated well by their father at all because their children now have no inheritance. And that's going to, uh, that kind of foreshadows how this whole chapter is going to culminate because they become very physically, but also relationally separated from their ancestry here. Very much so. Um, And that's going to be important for the narrative of Israel going forward. Uh, almost like a certain purity to the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now detached from these folks that come from Laban. Um, so they're, they're, they're all in agreement. They're going to go. Um, and then we read in verse 17, they head out. And it, it says, So Jacob arose and set his children and his wives on camels. And he drove away all of his livestock, all the property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram, to go to his father, Isaac, mm-hmm. in the land of Canaan. How strange. So he heads out with all this stuff, and we've had a few chapters of the complexity of how he got this stuff, um, which is also a similar motif. A patriarch gains wealth in a foreign land and then returns to the land of Canaan. Okay, mm-hmm. so now all three of them have done this. And they're going back to what his father in Canaan Yeah. thought Isaac died. Yeah. So what's going on here? (laughs) Well, it depends on which story you read. There you go. We've got parallel stories going here. So at the end, uh, chapter 27, we know that famous story of where Jacob steals Esau's birthright. Isaac is on his deathbed. Mm -hmm. And Jacob comes in and he tricks him out of that birthright. Well, then at the very beginning of chapter 28, we get a different ending. Mm -hmm. So Jacob has to flee in chapter 27 because he has now obviously angered his brother. And his brother wants to kill him because he has taken his birthright. Suddenly, at the beginning of chapter 28, oh, there's a different story. Now it's about Jacob needs to go to Laban, his uncle, in order to get a bride. His, his mother, Rebecca, is saying to his father, Isaac, I don't want Jacob to marry one of the Canaanite women like his brother, like his brother Esau did. And so we've got two different endings. And what you actually have here is what they call... Uh, the documentary hypotheses, which is what we've talked about a little bit before. Uh, you, and you can you can get more on that in the, the Genesis overview. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's worth noting, document, documentary hypothesis as a specific theory is highly debated. It is. But what, what an example of this is, is uh, there's obvious composition editing. There's a process involved in how these narratives came to be. Sure. And and you're seeing that here. That's exactly what's happening here. It's like you've got two different parallel schools of thought or or writers 
writing different stories and whether they knew about each other, it's hard to say. This section that we are reading right now in chapter 31 was written by what they call the E or the Helohist source. Mm -hmm. um, but the narratives in chapter 27 was written by the J or Yahweh source. And then chapter 28 had some P or Priestly source. And so it's hard to tell which source really was the one that the that our author now is really going with. But it seems that he's going with the idea that Isaac is still alive. So you see some parallel narratives here. And that's really about what that documentary hypothesis is good for. Mm -hmm. It helps you to sort out when you see parallel narratives or when you're trying to figure out what stories are which and maybe even what time period they were written in. Time period, definitely. Yeah. Um, but also, if you're if you're just reading a book like Genesis straight through, it gets tricky and it's almost confusing. Very trying to figure out what's going on. And because because here's a a way that people could interact with this is they they hear that and they go like, well, that's not how it's supposed to be. It's the word of God and fell out of the sky. <laughs> and your first response to all of this could be, this is bad. You can't talk like that. But but try to take you know if you're having that reaction, um, or if you've if you've uh, struggled with this complexity, and so what do we do with this? Doesn't this just discount everything? Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, not you're you're wrestling with non-literary cultures for hundreds of centuries, really. Right. Um, a lot of oral tradition. Mm -hmm. All of the socio-political mess that was the ancient Near East for why these grand narratives had to be written down in the first place. It's not as simple as somebody going like, let me write this down. Absolutely. Uh, it is a very complicated, messy process. And the fact that we have anything cohesive at the end of that <laughs> is amazing. Oh, these Bible writers were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But as you're reading and you're going like, well, that doesn't, Isaac's mm -hmm. still alive? I thought he died. Well, now you can actually read the story a little more clearly because you can look back at 27 and go, okay, so some of the details there aren't going to be the most prominent in a chapter like 31, because we're assuming that like in chapter 28, that Isaac's still alive. So what happened in chapter 28 that maybe is getting referenced here that exactly. wasn't a part of chapter 27. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of hoops to jump through, but you actually understand the story better. And these are narratives in which the author is trying to tell us something about the history of Israel, about the people of Israel, and also the nature of God. And so the stories sometimes have different emphasis depending on which, how that will serve that purpose. So there might yeah. be part of a story that gets told, part of a story that doesn't, and that all comes together then to make one coherent story. Just as you're reading, especially the Hebrew Bible, please don't be so arrogant to assume that people thousands of years ago were thinking about you. <laughs> when they were writing this down. Exactly. They you have audience. to do the extra work. Just be grateful that you even have this work in the first place. Because there's a lot of cultures that tried to write down stories, and we don't have them anymore. That's exactly we right. We do have this one. Mm -hmm. With all its messiness, but we have this one. We sure do. So from here, um, Laban is not done. So it's not so simple that Jacob and his wives and family and all the stuff that he kind of looted... Not so simple that they're just going to go. Uh, there's more to it. And Jacob, very technically, uh, had stole all these flocks. We're also going to find out here that Rachel steals her father's household gods. And so, again, uh, the deceiver deceives Laban. And to be fair, Laban also deceived the deceiver at different points. But now Rachel oh, yeah. is doing some 
swift deception herself. Such a fitting spouse for Jacob, I think. <laughs> I think she has some good motive here, though. Well, maybe not good, but it, calculated motive calculated, is what she's doing. Yes. Because it talks about how in uh, verse 19, now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her ho father's household gods. Now remember, we, we were talking about that bride price. In her mind, those flocks that Laban has gone to shear belong to her. She's thinking those sheep should have been mine. And so in retaliation, perhaps, or for whatever motive, she, she steals the household idols. And you have to understand, this isn't just a matter of stealing a couple trinkets from the house. These household idols had to do with the inheritance of a household. And because she's feeling like her father has taken that uh, inheritance with the sheep, she takes these household idols, in my mind, probably to ensure that her children get some kind of an inheritance then. So literally, to my mind, it would be something where they would take these household idols then back to their grandfather when they're grown and say, look, I have a portion of your household. So these are kind of like a, like a household sigil. Yeah, Almost, sure. and um, maybe even like contractual. Oh, definitely. In some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there okay. was um, definitely some contracts that you can find where these they actually showed how these gods could be apportioned out amongst the sons in a huh. household and but, so which means it's not just racial going like you know i'm gonna get you back or no i really want these for myself it, it does have to do more with lineage inheritance ancestry Absolutely. possibly a little blackmail for future use depending on what happens and with mm -hmm. what we know of being treated like a foreigner it would make sense for her to steal these household gods. Right, right. She's but making a claim. You're also saying that just on that part, it's not just about um, idol worship or anything not like that. Not necessarily. Okay. No. So, so it's, it's interesting to see that, that component of all of this. Mm -hmm. That now does it's, come up, but it, it's worth It's worth pointing out, too, that Laban's not uh, just standing idly by. Laban's kind of got his own potential recourse for what's going to happen. Um, and it's also, we don't know if Jacob knows what Rachel did. No. It doesn't it say directly like it, either it way. It seems like he doesn't know. Right. Um, so Laban finds out that they have left and pursues Jacob and his family. Uh, he finds out three days later, which is a common amount of days. That's not just a, a resurrection reference. That's uh, the, on the third day, something you see very frequently in the Torah in general. Um, and then we find out that Laban pursues Jacob for seven days. That's an important one. Pursues him completely to, to the okay. fullness of something being done. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a, a seven day period tells us like significant changes happened. This is, this is a new space now. Um, so then we find it catches up with him, overtakes Jacob is, is what it actually says. And now Laban is going to have a dream. Uh, God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night. Well, this sounds like Jacob. This is it what's does. supposed to happen to Jacob, and now it's happening to Laban. Um, and, and God tells Laban not to say a word to Jacob, good or bad. Um, Laban is not part of the covenant. He's not allegiant to Adonai, does come from a shared family history, but at no part, point do we see that this part of Abraham's ancestry is included in the covenant. And now 
Laban's been communicated with by this guy. So that's interesting in and of itself. It is. But it's also an intervention. Don't say anything good or bad. So Laban then confronts Jacob. <laughs> Wasn't supposed to say anything. Hmm. And and he does try to make it sound good. He says that, you know, he wanted to send Jacob off properly with celebration. So he drove all this way just to tell him that. Right? He just wanted a proper goodbye, of course. Oh, sure. And to By get my way. gods that you stole, where are they? Exactly. Right? You, yeah. Uh, so so that it kind of starts with this the same like interaction you've seen from Jacob and Laban for the past twenty years. Where, you know, we're just kind of pretending. <laughs> right, we're not revealing our cards. Where are my gods? And and then it all kind of comes to to a head. Yeah, and you can see um, how important this is then that these gods are to him. That he would go to that length to get them back. Mm-hmm. He's really not worried about his daughters. Mm-hmm. The nature of these gods is interesting. Um, archaeologists have dug up many sites in that of that time period in Israelite territories, and they find these gods and goddesses almost ubiquitous in a household. And they seem to be involved in some kind of ritualistic family religion, perhaps. So indeed, when you say that Laban doesn't really interact with Jacob's house the same way, it probably has to do somewhat with this kind of religion. And so some of these gods maybe are involved with ancestors, so you have your ancestral gods, and then you also have fertility gods that would deal with the prosperity of the household. So what Jake, what Rachel has done here is cut Laban off kind of at both ends. She cuts him off from his ancestry, and she also cuts off the future prosperity of his household. Mm-hmm. And when you know how important those things are to the ancient Near Eastern mind, you can really see why Laban was pursuing this. He yeah. really needed to get these gods back because they had to do, as we said, with the inheritance of his household, but also with his ancestry and with the fertility of his future household. Yeah. Um, and so now the, the conflict's going to kind of surround that. And, and so Jacob Jacob goes on um, and admits, you know, I, he ran secretly because he was afraid. But then Jacob kind of pushes back and says, enough of this stealing God's business. And then Jacob does something drastic. He says, if you find your little gods out here, <laughs> that person shall not live. And it's interesting that you say your little gods, because really, if you know the Hebrew words being involved here, it is interesting. So when Laban, every time Laban is talking about my household gods, where are my gods? He's using one kind of a word. When Jacob refers to them, he uses the word teraphim, which really has a kind of a connotation of being limp or impotent. And so you can see that Jacob has an opinion of these gods. Mm -hmm. And we'll kind of see this descent as Laban goes through this whole process of trying to find these that it really does become more and more diminished as this story goes forward. Yep. Um, an interesting note is that in, in verse 32, Jacob is going to say, point out what I have that is yours. Yeah. And that's interesting in this whole discussion because uh, the debate is actually about whether the wives, the children, or any of the, you know, the goods is actually Laban's. Um, and that's kind of what he came for, and that's wrapped up in the nature of these these idols. You know, these let's just call them these objects that have this contractual ancestral uh, and and fertility purpose for Laban's perspective. Um, and so when he says, "Point out what I have that is yours," it's almost like these gods stand in for the whole discussion that's taking place. Sure. Um, and Laban could say, "Well, those daughters there, those are mine." Um, or, or all those flocks 
those are mine. Uh, and, and, but that's never spoken up front. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see this going on between these two this whole time, which is what we've seen for the last several chapters. Um, so Jacob is kind of claiming when he does this that nothing that Jacob has is actually Laban's. Right. So will Laban concede on that? And the gods are just kind of standing for this, this whole problem that's going on. Um, so Laban goes to find the gods. They're kind of the object of interest here that represent all of this that's going on. And first he goes to Leah's tent. Would have been okay with her death. Kind of <laughs> maybe like some hoping like, I hope Leah has him because I'd be fine with her dying. <laughs> so he goes he goes to her first. Uh, and the order is important here. And then goes to the two maids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these are all different households, remember. And then he goes to Rachel's last and she's got some deception up her sleeve or under her seat, you could say. Yes, you could. Um, and and she says that she can't stand to greet her father because, you know, menstrual cycle. And, and Laban lets it go. Well, we find out where the gods are this whole time. And now this brings up the other, the fertility component of what, function these gods have. And now you do start to see the religious connotation that separates Laban from Jacob slash Israel. Absolutely. And the author does an interesting little sleight of hand here, I think. For one thing, we as the readers know where these household idols are hidden. And Rachel has hidden them in her camel saddle, and then she sits on it. And when her father comes into the tent, she says to him, I'm sorry, I can't stand up because I'm menstruating. So she's basically saying to her father, yeah, I don't have your fertility gods because if I did, I'd be pregnant, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But we, the reader, knows where these are. And so it's kind of the author also saying to us, look, she has these fertility gods and she's still not pregnant, so these are useless. These gods are completely impotent in order to provide yeah. for that fertility, that the thing that they're supposed to stand for. And you can't help but see a little bit of uh, Isaiah you know the, oh, the theology of Isaiah sitting in there of what are these are these are just pieces of metal exactly they're, right they're, they're the, not working the little wooden pillar statues they're not doing you any good at all so so Jacob uh, is apparently not aware of the situation we still don't have an idea that Jacob knows what's going on here and Jacob says what's the real reason you pursued me you were wrong you know we don't have your gods aren't here let our families decide between us. And then Jacob goes on to state his case there in the text. And he brings up the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. And there's sort of this positioning between these two traditions now. We're starting Mm -hmm. to see further separation between Laban's ancestry and Jacob's. And it's all wrapped up in these these gods and the the lineage and contract and the fertility. And um, all these differences are starting to really come into bear. And that's going to get get named here in verse 43. Um, they're going to make amends. And part of this is like, they resolve 20 years of conflict, but the outcome is what's important of these amends. They make a covenant with a stone pillar and a meal. And already in Genesis, you've seen this very frequently. Right. Some sort of uh, standing stone object is created. Usually there's some sort of meal, um, even sometimes explicitly with bread and wine. Um and this is also going to be kind of an etiology for the, the location, which we've seen with Jacob, like Bethel. That's right. Right. 
um, but also for the relationships between these tribes, which we've seen again and again now in Genesis. So mm-hmm. outside of the the role of this narrative in the Jacob cycle and the theology of it, it's also kind of explaining, you know, how these people came to not be friends and why they're there and they're there and this place is right. called this. Um, and Rachel's deceit kind of affirms the trajectory of where this is going to go. You know, nothing Jacob has is Laban's. Laban says that they are his, but now there's nothing that he can do about it. And that kind of affirms mm-hmm. this split is final. And uh, several promises are, are, are part of this. And this is kind of the ideological part. Um, you know, this heap of stones and this location. Um, in, in this, Laban uses a, a word that seems like it's not Hebrew, Probably it's Mesopotamian, which again kind of just notes the difference. And he calls this a witness heap, not really something that you see within um, uh, the kind of Jacob's language. Mm-hmm. Jacob calls it Galid, which is the Hebrew version of the same thing. So that that's just one way of going. Yeah, there there's some different perspectives here. Um, also, the name of the region that this is going to be called is uh, something like hard stony region. Um, so those words, the, the words that each uh, kind of person uses here, the name of the place, the different way they describe it, I think that's just denoting how different, you know, these perspectives are. Yeah. Um, Laban then emphasizes that this symbolizes that Adonai will watch between them. So all of a sudden he's yeah, into yeah. this sure. Adonai character. Yeah, right. Um, he's going to watch between them, and Jacob better not do anything to his daughters. You know, the ancient method of cleaning your shotgun on the porch, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, Laban also says that this represents that he will not pass beyond the heap into this region, mm-hmm. and Jacob will not pass back into his. So this is a territorial ownership ideology as well. Yeah. Um, and then Laban then does what he said he was going to do, and he has a proper goodbye matters resolved. Um, and, and now Laban's supporting role in the narrative is finished. We're not going to hear from him again. And so this is kind of a scene change in which it sounds like, you know, the trouble is over. Yeah, It's been 20 years of turmoil and difficulty and deception for Jacob, but he is finally back. And, you know, he, he's accomplished what he set out to do, right? He continued the covenantal family in a bit dysfunctional, the last few chapters are so strange, but he did it. You know, mom told him to get a wife from his ancestral heritage. Well, look, ma, I, I did it. Got four of them. <laughs> That's right. One above and beyond, Jacob. Um, but anyways, it, it's done. Um, so Jacob returns to the piece of the land he is from, which is also the land he fled. So you might be getting a sense like, oh, okay, so Jacob's chaos is over. Well, you should be sensing like a flashing warning sign here. After 20 years, he's about to re-enter a territory where he is a wanted man. The last time he was here, he was running for his life. And the whole the whole Laban story, you know, it's not the end of what's going on with Jacob. In fact, it seems like that was just more of a narrative to catalyze the chaos that always seems to follow Jacob around and it's about to get worse. That's Jacob's life. It's a series of episodes of conflict and conflict he brings on himself. He's constantly looking out for his own self-preservation, 
he's deceiving and manipulating and taking advantage of others. And Jacob is always running from the mess he makes from, from one place to the next. And it never works out. His pattern of living keeps him on the run. And so the end of one story of chaos for us, we should just be going and another story of chaos is about to begin. And something's going to need to change if he's going to stop running. Well, that's all about to come to a head as the next episode of Jacob's running continues. And it will only end when Jacob must settle for walking with a limp. So that's what we'll get into next time when we look at Genesis chapter 32. Thank you.